Our Father, we are thankful, Lord, for the chance to study in Your Word once again. We're thankful, Father, that we have the means to do that and uh, all that that entails, our physical health, the time, a church that values Your Word and makes uh, opportunity available, and uh, a country in which we take for granted so many things that make easy and convenient the access to Your, to your Word and to uh, a faith lived out. And Lord, as well, in our study tonight, we do pray that the Word would be uh, spoken clearly and boldly and that Your Spirit, Father, would ensure it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapters 21 and 22. We're still in the oracles. If you're feeling like uh, this is starting to to drag on in the sense that you're ready for something new or you're looking forward to what comes next. On the other hand, maybe for some of you this has been really interesting and you've enjoyed the chance to see eschatology buried in the text. I think tonight uh, I can make both of you happy because uh, on the one hand, we're still going to see some very interesting eschatology coming out of the text tonight. Uh, for example, tonight you find, if not directly in the text, you'll find it out indirectly through my teaching. You'll find the location of Christ's return when he returns to the earth. For the second group who is looking forward to where we go next in Isaiah, if there is anyone in that camp, uh, we're near the end. We talked tonight about chapters 21 22. We only have one more chapter after this that has any uh, of this oracle, the burdens of, of Isaiah for these neighboring countries. And then we'll move into an entirely new section of the book. So by next week, we'll be moving into that new section. So hang with me this week and, and into the last couple of chapters uh, as we go through this. Next week, we'll also take all the puzzle pieces that I keep referring to, the little segments of, of information that Isaiah has built into these oracles concerning the last days, and we'll lay them all out as best we can. And I'll try to produce a handout for you that lets you do it with me. And we'll see if we can make some sense out of some of what these pieces have told us and um, see what comes of all of it. If you go with me now into Isaiah, we'll start in chapter 21. We'll read 10 verses to start looking at a new oracle, starting in Isaiah 21, verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as windstorms in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam. Lay siege, Medea. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. For this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels. Horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table, they spread out the cloth, they eat, they drink. Rise up, captains, oil the shields, for thus the Lord says to me, Go station the lookout, let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. O my threshed people, am I afflicted of the threshing floor? What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. A a text like this with so many details and yet on its face a bit inscrutable. It's hard to understand perhaps what he's talking about. Uh, like anything in text, the text of Scripture, when you see this, you've got to go slowly, take it in pieces, 
knowing a lot about what's elsewhere in Scripture helps a lot. We'll look at some other verses tonight to bring the pieces together. And don't forget the pattern here. We're looking at near-term fulfillment and, if, if possible, a longer-term fulfillment as well, a longer-term prophecy. This one begins describing the wilderness of the sea. We don't start with the name of the place like we have in so many up to now. It's an obscure reference, but you know from looking further in the verses I read, verse 9 in particular, we know we're looking at Babylon. And this reference to the wilderness of the sea, that was a way of describing Mesopotamia in relationship to the neighboring seas that, that, that kind of define the geography of the Middle East. You have the Mediterranean, you have gulfs in the south, below. They kind of define a, a wilderness in between. And this is the general way of referring to Mesopotamia. The destruction of this place, which we now know as Babylon, is, dis- is compared here to a Sirocco or a hot desert wind that often blew in from the south, from Arabia into Negev, for example. And Isaiah is describing what's going to happen to Babylon in comparison to one of these hot desert winds that come into the Negev. A harsh, uh, hot, dry, uh, parching kind of devastation. Now, I'm not talking about a natural devastation, however, and that becomes clear as you look further in the text. It's meant as a picture or a euphemism. It's a harsh view of what's going to happen to Babylon, the enemy of Israel. Look at some of the descriptions as we go down the text. The treacherous one in verse 2 still deals treacherously. The destroyer still destroys. Who's the destroyer of Scripture? If I had to ask you that question without any other background. Satan, right? And in saying the treacherous one still deals treacherously, the destroyer still destroys We're saying here that the nature of Satan is always the same. It never changes. And in the way Babylon pictures the enemy, it reaffirms, in a sense, we're talking about Babylon here, but we're not sure exactly in what sense yet we mean Babylon. In the next verse, or in the next half of verse 2, you get to see what he's talking about Elam and Medea. Elam and Medea are two ancient words for Mesopotamia, which is the land region of Babylon, the city, the nation. Go back with me as we started this long series of oracles against various nations. We started with which nation? Way, way, way back. Chapter 13 or so. It was Babylon, wasn't it? But if you will remember, when we looked at Babylon back at that point, we only saw a prophecy about what will happen to Babylon, the world religion. Babylon, the enemy and his false attempts at religion. That was the only one that was in view way back then. It was two chapters long, but when we looked at it, it never reached to the point of actually talking about the physical destruction of a Babylon in Isaiah's time, let's say, roughly in his time. It talked about Persia destroying Babylon, but we learned as we studied it then that that's a reference to that region irrespective of time. And so it's potentially Iran coming in to destroy Iraq at a future day. It doesn't have to be in his day. It doesn't have to be the Medo-Persians that invaded in Isaiah's day. And of course, I'm summarizing this without going back into detail because we covered it. But that earlier reference to Babylon only dealt with the far prophecy. It never got into the near-term prophecy of how Babylon would actually be judged in Isaiah's day. We've seen that dual nature everywhere else. Babylon did not have it. Well, here you see the, the um, missing piece. This chapter talks about Babylon, the, the physical nation in Isaiah's time, reaching its end by God's judgment. And, the, and you begin to see that in the form of the details that describe the place physically, the wilderness of the sea, Babylon in verse 9. 
You see it in verse 2 where it talks about Elam and Media laying siege. These are the same, the same place that we talked about before, Medo-Persia, who was in fact the nation that destroyed Babylon. If you look at the details of the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah's day, verse 3 and 4, Isaiah says he's reeling from the sight of what will come upon Babylon. It terrifies him to consider what's coming. But in contrast, in verse 5, the Babylonians themselves are oblivious. They're eating. They're just calm. This is actually consistent with the historical record we have of how Medo-Persia took over Babylon. And Daniel 5 actually covers this a little bit. If you know, if you want to go back and look at Daniel 5, there's a scene in Daniel 5 where the Babylonians are eating dinner when God reveals to the king that, that he's going to take the kingdom away from the Babylonians and give it to the Medo-Persians. That's consistent with this vision that Isaiah is giving here of a time when the Babylonians are oblivious, they're eating, and then God brings judgment upon them in a surprising way. And it's a terrifying kind of thing, and that's what Isaiah is talking about. Uh, in fact, if you look in verse 5, they will suddenly have to rise to oil their shields. They used to take their shields and put oil on them because the, the arrows would skim off them more easily instead of sticking them. So it's a way of preparing for battle. Uh, then in 539 B.C., the Babylonians were taken by surprise by the Medo-Persians. And the Medo-Persians had several things they did that no one had done prior to them. They used camels and donkeys in their fighting array, or their fighting armaments. They would just basically scare camels and donkeys witless and spook them and, and hit them with a whip or whatever and cause them to just start charging toward the enemy lines of the, the enemy they're fighting and disrupt the lines. Big old camel comes charging at you. You can't stop it very easily. And after the, they, these animals had caused confusion in the ranks of the enemy, then they would come in after them and attack. They also had a pattern of walking in twos. So when they would march as a regiment or whatever you would call it into battle, they would march in pairs. Well, you see those descriptions in the text. There's a watchman, a fictitious watchman. Isaiah describes for us the scene that would have been what a watchman on a tower would have seen as they watched out for enemies coming to Babylon. They would have seen, as he describes it, riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels. And then to, to that watchman, Isaiah says, pay attention, pay close attention. The irony there, of course, is that they were caught by surprise in the way it really turned out. So he's built some irony into it as well for the sake of emphasizing you should have been watching. You're going to get taken by surprise. So all of these details play toward or, or contribute toward a conclusion that this is the description of how Babylon, the literal nation, would be destroyed in Isaiah's day. And then it becomes a partner with what we studied earlier about Babylon, which was Isaiah saying the spiritual Babylon would be destroyed in a future day. That's Revelation 17 and 18. So this is the adjoining piece that we haven't seen till now. He waited this long to give us that adjoining piece. Now, consider it from a second perspective. By that I mean, we know that the spiritual Babylon was described in the earlier chapters. We know this is more a description of the physical Babylon. But there is a couple of pieces in here that do seem to suggest more is going on than just the near-term destruction of Babylon. And one verse in particular, verse 9, does the phrase fallen, fallen as Babylon strike any bells? Hopefully it does for some. Let me read out of Revelation for you. Revelation 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, fallen, fallen as Babylon, the, Babylon the great. 
She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. Now that's a description of the future judgment of Babylon, the nation and the religion and the world system that the enemy uses to corrupt and distort the true faith in the living God. People have tried to name it, of course. People have looked at the verses of, of uh, Revelation 17 and 18 and tried to identify a current day institution of one kind or another that must be the institution that's being viewed here. But anytime we do that, we've begun to miss the point. Are there institutions that are a part of Babylon? Well, yes, if you're talking about any institution that doesn't preach the gospel. I mean, ultimately, everything is the enemies except what is God's from the point of view of, of how things play out in the world. You're either a Christian or you're not. You're either preaching the truth or you're not. And to the extent you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're an open house, swept clean, ready for something to inhabit it, which means the enemy can take full advantage of any unbeliever he wants, any time he wants. So there are certainly some institutions that are ungodly, and as a result, they are, in some sense, contributing. But the larger picture, the larger purpose of Revelation 17 and 18 and of Isaiah's writing on the same topic, is to emphasize that there is a source for the, for the enemy, there's a source for falsehood in the world and for false teaching and false religion. The term Babylon is an embodiment of that, tracing all the way back to Babel itself, where the enemy first instigated idol worship among men. And in the last days, God will wrap all of that up in a common, kind of under a common nomenclature and destroy it all in one fell swoop. False religion in all forms, having been united under one title. Now, in the verses we just read out of Isaiah, chapter 21, this term, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Look at the next line in verse 9. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. I think what Isaiah is doing is describing literally what happened to the nation of Babylon at the hands of the Medo-Persians. But he is using, God has given him language to use that is intentionally uh, similar to to language that we see later in Scripture in Revelation for the specific purpose of hearkening us back, of making a connection in our mind that though this is the day of a specific physical destruction of Babylon, it is just a precursor for what God will do in a later time that will address Babylon in all its meaning, not just in the sense of a nation. So in other words, it's not to say this changes the point of chapter 21. It's still talking about the literal Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar. But... It's intentionally meant to evoke in our minds the knowledge of what is coming later for Babylon. So the first part of chapter 21 is the oracle against the nation of Babylon in reality and how it is itself going to be judged. Okay, now moving on. Chapter 21. If you think what I just covered with Babylon is a bit obscure, and hopefully it's not too obscure, it gets much worse with the next two verses. Verse 11. The oracle concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman. How far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. They seem completely obtuse. In fact, they seem disconnected like you're listening to one half of a conversation. 
All right, we know this is an oracle about Edom. That's the easy part. Edom is a longtime enemy of Israel's present-day southern Jordan and includes parts of the Arabian Peninsula today. It was founded by Esau and his descendants. Esau was the brother of Jacob, twin brother. Their descendants, Esau and his descendants, were always set against Israel, Jacob and his brothers. And that was something God decreed, if you remember, through Israel, through Jacob's blessing on, on those, or through uh, uh, Isaac's blessing on his children, that they would be set against one another. And that played out in the way that the Edomites were always an enemy of the Israelites. Next to Babylon, in fact, Edom is the most despised nation in God's eyes. And that's going to become clear here in a minute by looking at the text. Isaiah says in the verses we read, one is calling him, meaning Isaiah, from Seir, the main mountain in Edom. Seir is the principal mountain in the, in the nation. Now, some of the words in Hebrew here are particularly important to understand to get some sense of what's going on here. The word for Edom here is not the traditional word. It's, it's being translated properly. It is describing and it's intended to describe Edom. But the word in Hebrew that's being used here is Idumea. Idumea is the homeland for King Herod. King Herod of Jesus' birth, he was an Idumean, which means he was an Edomite. And he called himself king of the Jews. Remember, that's why the Jews, one reason why the Jews never accepted him is because they knew he wasn't Jewish. And, uh, never, and they knew he was an, e- an Edomite. But in using the word Idumea to describe the land, rather than just using the word Edom to begin with, it tells you something about the meaning of this oracle. Because the word Idumea means, in Hebrew, literally, deep, utter silence. You can see the same word used, for example, in Psalms with uh, a full understanding of its meaning. Psalms 31:17. Let me just read you that one line. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. And the word silent there is Idumea. Silent means dead, eternally silenced. And Sheol here is a reference to the place of the dead. So that's the, that's the full sense of the meaning of the word. It's silence in the sense of eternal death. Eternal silence and death. So when Isaiah chooses to use that word to describe Edom, and it's not the conventional word for a reader in Hebrew, it immediately evokes this thought that why is he choosing to call this place deathly silence rather than using its common name? It's a play on words, and it implies that that's the outcome for Edom that Edom will suffer deathly, eternal silence as a nation, as a people. So the oracle here is about that kind of an outcome for Edom. And in this oracle, the watchman keeps asking, how far gone is the night? Now, at first, those words don't make sense maybe to some because they're not the way we might say it. But what we're saying here in a sense is what a kid says in the car on a long road trip. How much longer till we get there? But... Yeah, are we there yet? And in fact, the two phrases there, how far gone is the night, how far gone is the night, they're different in Hebrew. They're not the same words in both cases. They mean essentially the same thing, but the difference in the wording between them subtly changes the, the real way it's heard to a Hebrew ear. And if we were to put it into English, it would be something more like this. What part of the night is it? How much long do we have to go before the night passes? Like how far of the night has gone? And then the second question is how much more is coming? That's the sense of it. Both to the same point, though, of course. When does light come? When does the, de- when does the night end? All right, so the question that's being asked is, how much more darkness do we have to endure? And then, interestingly, in verse 12, verse 12 suddenly switches to Aramaic. 
Now, up until this point, Isaiah is written in Hebrew all the way from verse one of chapter one. But now in chapter 21, verse 12, for one verse only, he writes in Aramaic. And and by the way, Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke when he walked the earth. All right. He he knew. I'm sure he knew how he knew Hebrew, of course. I'm sure he probably knew Greek as well, because that was not that was a common language as well of the day. But the, the the common man speaking language was Aramaic. It was Aramaic. And so um, in speaking Aramaic at this point, you hear these words. Morning comes, he says, but also night. In other words, to the answer, the answer to the question of when is this night going to end? The uh, answer comes back. Well, the morning will come, but it will still be night for Edom. In other words, when the world is brought out of darkness, i.e. the night and into Light, i.e. the morning, Edom will not get that relief. It will remain in night. Now, taking that with what we know he said already in the prior verse about it being an oracle of utter eternal silence, eternal death, the suggestion here is there is a point of relief for the world from darkness, but it won't come to Edom. Edom will not be spared. Edom will not return from darkness. And then finally, Isaiah says to those in Edom, some in Edom at, at this time, If you would inquire or search, then do so and come back. And really in the Hebrew, the sense is to turn back. The word there is actually one that means conversion. So it's to turn to something new. Repentance might be another way to say it, although that's not literally the word being used. But it's in this sense of if you have an inquiry, ask it and then come back. Turn and return. Come back and return. Now, without any other scripture to go on, and if we only had those two verses... Uh, it would we would be hopelessly lost in understanding what they meant. I mean, we have some glimmer and some idea, but we really don't understand the full meaning of it if this is all we had. Fortunately, it's not all we have. Isaiah moves on to a new topic in the next verse, but we don't have to because we know what else is in the Scriptures generally on Edom and on what God plans to do with Edom. Some of that will come later in Isaiah. Chapters 34 and 53 both address Edom and its future. We will save those for when we get there. But for now, we can look at a few other places in Scripture to understand the promise here. We're trying to understand this promise of eternal darkness for Edom combined with a call in Aramaic, strangely enough, for some to, quote, return. First, if you go to Jeremiah, and I'll give you the verses. You can go there if you have time to flip with me or you can just write them down and listen to me. Either way, Jeremiah 49:13 goes like this. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Batra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cities will become perpetual ruins. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I have made you small among the nations, despised among men. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its wounds. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord, no one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thickets of the Jordan against a perennially waste, a watered pasture, for in an instant I will make him run away from it, and whoever is chosen I shall appoint over it. For who is like me, and who will summon me into court? 
And who then is the shepherd who can stand against me? Therefore, hear the plan of the Lord which he has planned against Edom and his purpose which he has purposed against the inhabitants of Taman. Surely they will drag them off, even the little ones of the flock. Surely he will make their pasture desolate because of them. The earth has quaked at the noise of their downfall. This is an outcry. The noise of it has been heard at the Red Sea. There's a lot there. Let's just cover it at a high level. We know historically that the nation of Edom, the, the place we call Edom, was destroyed as a people group by the Romans when the Romans finally came in and, and took over that part of the world. And they've never reconstituted. There's never been an Edom since then. But we know there's been people inhabiting that land and continue to inhabit that geographic region today. We call it Jordan. And it's again, it extends even into parts of uh, Israel today and down into the Arabian Peninsula. That's all part of what was historically Edom. So in the verses we just read here, and connecting them with what we know Isaiah's already said, there's a discussion here about a destruction of Edom that is perpetual. God used the word perpetual, and he described it in verse 18 of Jeremiah as a, a destruction that would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, once Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed, there was nothing left, and there was no city to go back to. And he's saying with Edom it'll be the same. No one will ever live there. Perpetual. Well, that means that what the Romans did to Edom can't be the fulfillment of this prophecy because what the Romans did didn't achieve this outcome. People still live there after the Romans were there. So whatever Isaiah is talking about in chapter 21 is not what, I, what Jeremiah is talking about here. There's some future event planned for this geographic area, the historic Edom, even if it's not called that today, which has not yet transpired. So like all of Isaiah's prophecies, we're looking here both at a near-term fulfillment. The near-term fulfillment of God's judgment against the Edomites happened under Rome. But then we're also looking for a far-term, a longer-term fulfillment in which God will take a second action against this same place with much greater spiritual implications. We've seen this now time and time again with each nation, right? Something near, something far. Something simple, something more complex and a little harder to see. So to identify what that future fulfillment must be, I need to give you some additional background that you don't have in Isaiah. If you were to look at chapter 12 of Revelation, chapter 12 of Revelation, you would see a description using symbols of a time during the tribulation, right about midpoint, about three and a half years into that seven year period, when God says that the enemy will begin a concentrated persecution of Israel of the Jews that live in the tribulation at that point, at the midpoint of tribulation. The Jews are pictured by a woman in chapter 12, and the persecution comes at the hands of Satan, who is pictured as a dragon. The dragon persecutes the woman, the Scripture says in Revelation 12. Then later in that chapter, we hear God providing Israel a form of escape, a kind of protection so that they can survive the last half of tribulation without uh, being destroyed, essentially, by the enemy, by Satan. He produces, we're told, a refuge in the desert where the nation of Israel, this woman, is carried off into the, to this special protection place in the desert where she is protected for times, a time, and half a time. Two plus one plus a half. That's three and a half. So there is this some place somewhere in the desert that serves as a protection for the woman, Israel, during this last half of tribulation when the enemy is let loose on the earth and dwells the Antichrist and seeks to destroy the Jews. And God protects them supernaturally in this holding place. 
And they remain there until Christ's return at the end of tribulation. Now, here's where I say, if you're wondering how did you come to all of that, Steve, I invite you to go online, listen to the Revelation study. And, and if you just want to skip and listen to that chapter, it's out there online. Micah gives us the description of where this place is, where this holding place is that the Jews are held up in, protected by God against the Antichrist in the last days. Micah 2, verse 12. God says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes out before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go out by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. Now, the first part of that passage describes where they are. And the second part of that passage describes how they get out when the Lord leads them out through a gate, if you will, walking them out freely and safely. So they are penned up like sheep in a fold. The word fold there means pen. And they remain there until the king, till Christ comes before them and leads them out. Now, I said that that verse told you where this takes place. And you're looking at the verses and you're saying, well, didn't catch that. Well, as is often the case, it's in the Hebrew, not in the English. The word in the first verse I read, verse 12, the word for fold, it's a unique Hebrew word. This is the only place in the Old Testament it appears. Now, there are plenty of places in the Old Testament where we see sheep described as being in a pen or in a fold. And in your English Bible, the word fold appears multiple places in the Old Testament. But it just so happens that this is the only place in which a particular Hebrew word is being used for the word fold. Normally, it's the word miklaah, which means pen or container to hold sheep. You'll see that, for example, if you want a reference for later in Habakkuk 3.17. Habakkuk 3.17, you hear about sheep in a pen. And the word in the Hebrew is miklaah for the sheep's pen. But here in chapter 2 of Micah, verse 12, where you see the word fold, what is the Hebrew word for fold here? Batra. Batra. The city in Edom, which we today call Petra. Petra. Batra is the traditional name, and that's the word here in Hebrew. But it is the city of Petra. For movie buffs, the last of the three, not the most recent one, but of the original three Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know the one with Sean Connery in it? Remember when at the very end of the movie they're being chased on horses through these really narrow canyon, desert wall canyons? That's Petra. It's a famous place in Jordan because it's this ancient ruin. And the nature of it is these are uh, uh, water-hewn canyons in the rock, have very narrow openings. And if you block off that narrow opening without an aircraft, it's impossible to get into these pens. So if God could supernaturally block the front of one of these things through a rock fall or some other way, you'd be safe in there unless somebody had the means to fly up over the top and get in there after you. And in the time of tribulation, there'll be a lot of destruction to modern infrastructure, so much so that Scripture talks about men reverting to horseback and other kinds of more rudimentary living. If that is true, then you can understand why that would be a safe place for people. There'd be no way to penetrate those, those places. So putting it together, you have Micah saying that God's plan for folding up the nation, holding the nation of Israel, the remnant, he calls it here, is in this place called Batra which is consistent with what we understand Revelation 12 suggests, which is a place in the desert outside of Israel where the people can be held up in safety. And one other place I'm going to take you, Isaiah 63, 
At the end of tribulation, we know Christ returns. Remember what Paul says in Romans 11. There is always a remnant of Israel. There is never not a remnant. And a remnant is a believing element within Israel. We know from my earlier teaching that the Lord's return is precipitated by, is, is started by the nation of Israel in Jerusalem coming to faith in a moment by the work of the Holy Spirit, calling out on, remember, they look upon the one whom they have pierced like they would mourn for an only son and they call upon me. And that's Christ's moment of return to save the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. But they're not believers, of course, until that last moment. So they're not the remnant. They become part of the remnant in their faith at the end. But until that faith moment occurs at the last day and Christ comes back, up until that moment, they're unbelieving Jews. They're Jew, but they're not the remnant. Where are the believing Jews of tribulation? The true remnant that Paul uh, tells us will always exist. They're the ones in Petra. They're the ones who know, based on the prophecies Christ gives, particularly in Matthew 24, when he says, when you see certain signs, don't go up to the rooftop to get your coat. Don't go, you know, don't go back into your home, but leave and flee to the mountains, else you'll be destroyed. If you believe that, if you believe Messiah is Christ and you believe his words, you'll know to take his advice. When the time comes, you'll flee the city and you'll escape and you'll end up in Petra. And as a result, you're safe until the end of tribulation. You're the believing remnant held safe there. Again, I'm wrapping a lot of stuff up here that I teach out of Revelation. But now look with me at Isaiah 63 and you'll see, I think, enough of, the stu- enough of what I'm saying coming together to understand it. When Christ returns, he comes first to that remnant and then from the remnant goes to Jerusalem for the Jews who cry out for him. Now, how that takes place logistically, we don't know. You know, he's not getting a bus ticket and driving over there, all right? We don't know exactly how he moves and how we move with him and and how fast it all takes place. It's really irrelevant in, in the sense of we don't need to know that in order to understand the big picture. It is interesting, though, to wonder about it. But here we see that pattern, that order, that sequence. Look at Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from where? Batra. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then you see a quote here. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who is tread in the winepress? And then a quote again. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have, stained, I have stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is Isaiah interviewing Christ, essentially, looking at him from Jerusalem, which was Isaiah's home point, watching him come from Batra. And if you take that together with what Micah says, remember how the Jews are led out of Batra, out of Petra? Their king goes before them and leads them out. This combined with some other things that I'm not bringing out in Scripture, that you know, there's some more pieces there out in Scripture you can pull together. You, you stitch together a timeline of Jesus' return to the earth taking place in Batra to free the remnant of the Jews to then go to Jerusalem and, and save the Jews who are under attack there and who come to faith as he arrives for them. And with him comes the saints, but in the way that Isaiah 63 describes it, he wants to make clear it's not as though there's a whole army fighting with Christ. He doesn't need help. 
He's able to do this on his own, he says. I bring salvation by my own arm. I don't bring an army. I bring me. Now, we're there with him, but not to fight with him. There's no need for us to be a part of that fight. So, that's why Isaiah can say back in chapter 21 that when morning comes for the world, it doesn't come for Edom. Edom is still eternally silenced by Christ because what do we just hear? He trod down the peoples in his anger. He destroyed those who were in Edom at that time and presumably trying to figure out a way to get to the remnant that was still there and destroy it. Remember, who's behind all of that anger and all of that, that hatred of the Jews? Satan, who's around on the earth and instigating this whole thing. So he's apparently got an army surrounding Jerusalem to go after those Jews and some other contingent who is in Edom working to try to find a way into the remnant to destroy those Jews. Because you understand, folks, if, if the enemy knows even just a little bit about Scripture, and I have to give him a credit to know at least something, as wise as we're told he is, as crafty as we're told he is, then if he understands that the Jewish nation is the, is the key to Christ's return, that a Jewish nation crying out to him in faith will precipitate Christ's return, then he doesn't have to be very smart to figure out that if he destroys the last living Jew, he's safe. No Christ return. So in the last days, he understands what his target is, the Jews. And by the way, that would explain a lot of history when it comes to the Jewish nation as well, wouldn't it? As John says in First John, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive even today and at work in the world. He is constantly looking for a way to thwart what is an inevitable outcome, his destruction. And the key is Israel. If he can destroy Israel, he destroys God's own stated method of return. Of course, God's not going to allow it, but the enemy hasn't been stopped by that thought yet. Why is he going to stop then? So he's destroying the only two camps of Jews that remain, or trying to, anyway. That means Jesus goes first to destroy those who are trying to destroy the Jews in Batra. Then he proceeds to Jerusalem to destroy those who are trying to destroy the Jews in Jerusalem and brings the two groups together, and we're with him. Why then does he say in Aramaic to some group in Edom, come back, turn and come back. What does it mean that he's speaking in Aramaic? It was Christ's language, if you think of it humanly, and it was the way he would have called to somebody himself. Well, the Lord himself is the one who goes to Edom. The Lord himself is the one who calls them to follow him out the door, right? If you will, it seems that the Aramaic of Isaiah is Isaiah essentially representing Christ's own words to what will be said in that moment. If you inquire, come on out. If you, you know, if you inquire, inquire. Come back with me. Let's go. It's, to quote, it's almost like a quote of Jesus, if you think of it that way. And it's not to say those have to be literally the words Jesus will use, but in the fact that he turns to Aramaic, he triggers to that connection in our mind. He makes us wonder, why would he choose Aramaic to say those words? Who else spoke Aramaic? Jesus did. And we know from other scripture that it will be him making that call. So the call is not to the Edomites, it's to the Jews who are in Petra. So for Edom, night continues, though the day has dawned for the world. And there is a group within Petra who are being brought out. My people, he calls them. So to our puzzle piece task here that we've been engaged in, the puzzle piece is that upon the return of the Lord, he prepares a place for rescue for Israel, even within the enemy's lands of Edom, and he will personally escort them out. So it's another puzzle piece of filling out the mosaic of what are the end times going to include, what goes on in the end times. You see how much of, of the nations that comprise all these enemy states, how much each of them has some significant role to play geographically or otherwise in the events that come at the end times. 
and God has orchestrated each of them. It's as though God has said, I'm going to have this play out with each of you playing a role, but you're not going to wish you were in the play. Because I'm going to use each of you as, a ne- as an example of judgment for what you did to Israel. So as I'm uplifting them in this last day, I'm handling each of you in a unique way for the sake of judgment. Finally, chapter 21 gives us a short description of a judgment against Arabia. The oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night, O caravans of Denonites. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Timah. Meet the fugitive with bread, for they have fled with from the swords, from the drawn sword and from the bent bow and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, in a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate. And the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. That's Arabia. Arabia is... In its history, it's been a collection of tribes that all moved nomadically within a general region that we today call Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is really just the name for the united kingdom of tribes that the Saudi tribe took control over. So they're one tribe of many that have occupied that region historically, and they just happen to unite it with a single king who continues to reign, passing the kingship down in a monarchy. But it's really still tribes. Even today, within that Arabian Peninsula, there are tribes. In the verses you see here, it pulls out three tribes specifically to talk about. I don't think it's limited to them here. They're just representative of the region. The tribes of Dedan, the tribe of Tema, and the tribe of Kedar. They're just representative of the whole region. So this is an oracle against Arabia. Its realization came in Isaiah's lifetime. That's why he can say, in one year. This is going to happen. So these are the Assyrians who came in. And historically, they started pressing south. And as as I said, they started in in northern Israel and moved into Philistia and they moved down into Moab and so on. As they pressed downward, what do you think happened to the people who were in those places? What, what, What came out of them, do you think? A lot of refugees, right? People would flee the advancing army. And those refugees went south. If you go or south, southeast, you know, away from the fighting, that takes you to Arabia. So what you see in this description here is what the Arabians saw initially, which were what? Inhabitants, a thirsty inhabitants, fugitives needing bread. They saw this influx of fugitives coming into the land. Isaiah says to them, when you see this happening, this is what God is going to warn you with. Or another way to say it is, this is the first stage of something that's coming upon you. Because eventually, we know from history that Assyria moved into Arabia proper and took over these tribes and conquered this region as well. From what I can tell, there doesn't seem to be any distant prophetic meaning here. There's no secondary meaning to Arabia. I mean, if there is, I didn't find it. I don't see anything in the Scripture that talks in any greater detail. So this may be nothing more than a near-term prophecy of judgment for Arabia. Next, chapter 22. This chapter is fascinating. This one deals exclusively with Jerusalem itself. So we're not talking about Jerusalem. We're not talking about the enemies anymore. We're talking about Jerusalem itself here, which is an interesting change. Let's read, uh, we're going to read several large sections at a time here. The first one will take us all the way to verse 14. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. 
For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry, and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Then your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate, and he removed the defenses of Judah. In that day you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall, and you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. But you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Well, from some of the internal details, you see the confirmation. This is Jerusalem we're talking about here, the city specifically. And the Valley of Vision reference up front means Jerusalem when you understand it in its context. Jerusalem, uh, first of all, was where Isaiah lived and spoke from. And therefore, it's his place of vision. It's where he got his visions. So that's the reference to vision. The reference to valley just has to do with the geographical features of the city. The city sits with about a bunch of mountains around it. They're not particularly tall, but from the point of view of being in the city, you feel like you're in a valley if you look around, I guess, and see the mountains around you. We know just from other detail, though, verses 9 and 10, for example, that we're looking here at Jerusalem. You have a proud and you have a confident population in Jerusalem. That's what you see in verse 2. You see it repeated in verse 13. This is that phrase, let us eat, drink. For tomorrow we may die. That's the perspective on those in Jerusalem. Carefree. And certainly without any trust and confidence in God. Just relying on themselves. But Isaiah says, God is going to judge their sin. Now interestingly, he says, it's not going to come by the sword though. That's in verse 2. It says the slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. So, that means this is not a case where the nation or the city is overtaken by an army and they, they're routed by an army. So we have to look for a historic moment when the city was taken... And there was a judging of sorts against them, but it didn't result in people dying in battle. Now, Elam and Kerr are the ancient names of this, uh, for Mesopotamia as a whole, or Babylon specifically. So here's Babylon again now. Now they're the enemy coming in. Jerusalem had a great wall, arguably the best wall of the ancient world. That's why the city would often withstand attack when others couldn't. But if the army around them were large enough and stayed there long enough, what would it do to the city? No food. They'd eat everything they had and then they're stuck. That's exactly what Babylon did. They starved them out uh, in a sense. Now, there was a second occurrence of that, if you know, through the Romans. But this first one is the one that's in view here. This is about 100, will happen about 100 years after Isaiah's day. It's a specific judgment against Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem and not, say, Judah? Because Jerusalem withstood the attack of Assyria. Their attitude then was, we don't care who shows up, Jerusalem will be safe. That's the attitude evoked in the, in, the verse, in the verses we read. And God is assuring them through Isaiah, don't get too cocky. You're going to be under judgment when I decide you're under judgment and nothing's going to stop that from happening. And this is your warning. And it's a national judgment. I can give you a description of it in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36, uh, 15, 36, 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, meaning his prophets, 
because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So we know he's talking here about Jerusalem, his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans and the Chaldeans are Mesopotamia who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. Now, there was fighting and there was some death in battle, but as a populace, they were not destroyed. What, what happened to the nation of, uh, or the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonians broke through? They were taken in captivity, right? That's where the book of Daniel picks up. Is Daniel being taken into captivity into Babylon? So, in the time prior to them breaking through the wall, there was great suffering in the city because of starvation. Ultimately, they broke through the wall and they took captive the nation of or the, the people in the in Jerusalem and led them out. Some died, of course, but the bulk of them didn't. Jeremiah records the feeling of those people in the city during the uh, siege. And Jeremiah was one of them. And he records them in the book of Lamentations. And the book of Lamentations is just that, lamenting over what happened in Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Look at just this one section of Lamentations. Lamentations 4, 9. Not a book you read, by the way, when you want to be pepped up a little bit. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boil their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. So he seems to suggest just in that verse that the women shouldn't be blamed in the sense that they were unusually mean or evil women. These are otherwise compassionate women who took that step out of desperation, I assume. I mean, I can't imagine it myself, but that's the nature of how things got. Then he goes on. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He poured out his fierce anger and he has kindled, kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. They never imagined, the whole world never imagined anyone could get into the city of Jerusalem. That's exactly the problem. They had come, remember in uh, Isaiah where I was reading a moment ago about what their attitude was? They had this attitude that there was never going to be anything that could get through their walls. And then Isaiah says, but they didn't depend on the one who made it. They were depending on the physical structure, not on the God who made the walls. And as he says, planned them long ago. So it was, it was a necessity that God get Babylon into the walls of the city and take that city to make a point to the Jews who had misunderstood their, their own history and assumed that they had protected themselves through their own walls. God says, no, you're not beyond my, my reach. Then in, Isaiah moves our focus to an earlier time and among two specific people. So the first part of this chapter deals with a coming judgment for the city of Jerusalem who has otherwise been left out of past judgments that came upon uh, Israel and Judah generally. Now he moves to the second half of this chapter and it takes a very interesting turn. He starts talking about two specific people. Now these are literal people, historically. Two men who lived in Jerusalem during a different time. Now this is where it starts to get confusing. These two men were not in the city during the time of Babylon. They are contemporaries for Isaiah. Which means they lived through the earlier time of the Assyrian siege. Remember, the Assyrians came in they took all of northern Israel and took them away. They reached into southern Israel, Judah, destroyed 40-something cities of Judah, eventually got up around Jerusalem, and as Isaiah described it, the neck 
They were at the neck. They never got through the walls. Now, they were able at times to kill some of the people in the city by just the attacks they tried to make on the wall. They had, you know, people tried to come and go at night and sneak in and out of the city and they would sometimes capture some of those people. So there was, there was danger there, but they never did get through the whole city wall and take the city as a whole. Now, during that time, these two men lived. So Isaiah is talking about people that lived in his day during the Assyrian battle. We've come back to Isaiah's own day. These two men become representatives of both faithfulness and unfaithfulness in being leaders of Israel. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He's about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be, you shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. So remember, these are contemporaries of Isaiah. Shebna, in this case, is one who we are told is responsible for the royal house of Judah. Now, to understand what that means... You have a king in in Israel, or in Judah in this case. That's not this guy. He's number two. He's responsible for the royal household. You know, like the president has a chief of staff. You might think of this guy in that way. Literally, it's the same position that Joseph held for Pharaoh. Number two in the nation under Pharaoh. That's who Joseph got to be at one point. Well, that's who Shebna was for the king of Judah. He was number two, if you will. He is in charge of the royal household. Now, he believes himself to be so important that we're told he's prepared for himself in the rocks of the mountain around Jerusalem somewhere, a royal tomb. Real fancy place, must have paid a lot of money for it, has it all set up so that when he dies, he'll have this fancy mausoleum to himself to forevermore mark his importance in death. Without knowing more about what this guy did in his office, just the fact that he did that tells you a lot about him, I think, or it certainly suggests a lot about what he thought was important and how he used his his authority and stewardship and what, what he was after in his in his position of power. And in God's own statements against the man, there's an implication here that he wasn't a good steward and wasn't a good leader. God says he's going to bring him down from that office. Particularly if you know the state of Judah in that day. Remember, in the day that, that this is all written, the nature of Judah was an idol-worshiping, evil culture who had left the living God and had many evil leaders off and on. They had good and bad, but they were hardly a, a model culture. And if this guy is one of the leadership, it's likely to, to be the case that he was part of the problem that he led them astray. Maybe even a chief leader in that, regard, in that regard. So God promises to judge him by preventing him from ever using his fancy tomb. I love this. God's always got such a creative way of dealing with people. He doesn't just kill him outright. He lets him live, but sends him in exile, basically, to a faraway country where he will die without the benefit of his tomb, which is way back in, in Jerusalem, which is comical if you think about it because his tomb goes empty. So it stands as a testimony against him you know, that he had the time and effort to build this thing and never got to use it. Now, how did he get exiled? We don't know the history on this guy for where he went. Uh, We know he is, by word of Scripture, we know he must have been taken into exile at some point. We only know this about him, that he would be replaced by this other gentleman who comes next in the text, uh, Eliakim. And Eliakim will take his place as a good steward. Verse 20, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, Eliakim, the son of uh, Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. And I will trust him with your authority. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. 
I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to my father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. This is describing what God will do after Shebna is no longer in authority. And if you were to jump to 2 Kings, just one verse, but 2 Kings 18.18, this describes a time during the siege when Assyria is outside the gates trying to make their way in and they're trying to threaten the people by yelling at them over the wall, telling them it's hopeless, you're going to be destroyed, give up while you still can't. You know the story with King Hezekiah? So the background here is that they send a delegation out to meet some of the representatives of the Assyrian army. And in the contingent that Judah sends out, you find this description in verses 18, 18 of Second Kings. When they called to the king, here's the delegation, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So it seems as though Shebna gets demoted even before he gets exiled. So God puts, Shebna's no longer head of the household, that's Eliakim. Shebna's just the scribe. And he's being placed in this demoted role for a time, apparently, and then later, we don't know how, he is taken into exile. So there is this initial demotion that takes place, and it's recorded already in Scripture by the time you get to that point in Second Kings. Finishing, though, with the description of Eliakim, let's try to understand this oracle about Israel. Israel starts with the description of how they will be judged as a city. We know how that takes place in historical terms. Is there a second meaning, that further distant prophetic meaning embodied in this, in this oracle against Jerusalem? Well, look at some of the description of Eliakim. That, that God will replace the corrupt leaders of Israel with a better, perfect leader, if you think of it from the point of the view of the text. A leader who God will raise up to ensure that his people are treated fairly. And look at the descriptions. He's a father to the people. The key of the house of David will rest on his shoulders. The key to ruling on David's throne, in other words. And with this key, whatever he opens remains open. Whatever he chooses to shut remains shut. It's a kind of, it's a sign of that there is no higher authority. You know, you can say a man has got all authority, but that's always understood to be under God's authority, right? No one ever gets to that point. This phrase seems to mean there is no other authority, that this is God himself at work. There is no other higher source. And it sounds familiar if you know Revelation again. In the letters to the churches in chapter 3 of Revelation, to the letter written to Philadelphia, you hear Christ describing himself this way. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says, and then the letter goes on. It seems awfully coincidental that the description God offers for Eliakim would match almost word for word the description Christ gives for himself. It would seem, and I think this is a clear reference here, it would seem that Eliakim becomes a picture here of how God will ultimately restore Israel and Jerusalem specifically by his own hand. That he's not going to depend on men to do it. That he himself will be the one who ultimately fulfills it. And you see that, I think, even further in that last reference, this peg. And the peg here is, in the Hebrew, the sense of the word is the main stake that you would drive in as you set up a tent. So it has to, it has to hold the full weight of all the tension on the tent. So it's that main post that holds up the center of the tent. The long pole in the tent. That's the peg. So everything rests on it. All the weight. It has to bear all the weight. And that peg here 
he says, will be the thing on which the Father's glory rests. But then it curiously ends by saying, it will break off and fall and the load hanging on it will be cut off. Well, of course, that would suggest in the way Christ himself was cut off for a time, right? That it was not the case that God would send Israel that deliverer such that he would uphold the tent from the first day, but rather he would have a moment of being cut off. And with it, it says what? The load hanging on it. Israel itself would be, as you know, in A.D. 70, eventually scattered out of Jerusalem. So without the leader standing firmly in place, all that hangs on it is gone, at least for a time. I'll end with these verses, Daniel 9:24. When Daniel talks about the future arrival of the Messiah, he adds a very fascinating detail, which we understand now very well, but it matches to what Isaiah is using here to describe uh, Eliakim. Daniel 9:24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city, that's Israel, that's the Israelites and Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and to discern that from an issuing of a decree to restore and build, rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again, meaning the temple, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, there's a lot there we aren't going to cover tonight. But the bottom line is, in describing how the Messiah will come and the timeline for that arrival, Isaiah, or Daniel adds that little detail that says there's a moment in this timeline when Messiah is cut off. We now know that those dates trace perfectly to Christ's death on the cross. We also know that it wasn't a permanent cutting off. And in like manner, I think Eliakim, the description of how he would rule and the picture it forms of Christ includes the little cutting off piece, which is evoking or or describing Christ's death on the cross so that we would know it is him that we're talking about. Zechariah 10.3 My anger is kindled against the shepherds, meaning the leaders of Israel, and I will punish the male goats for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone. Listen to this. From them, the tent peg. From them, the bow of battle. From them, every ruler, all of them together, they will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, and they will fight, for the Lord will be with them, and the riders on the horses will be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back, because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Some of the same imagery there of how Jesus leads in battle and leads in restoration of his people, ultimately, even if at an earlier point he was cut off. So I think the picture coming out of this last oracle of Jerusalem is the city itself needs to be judged for their sin and will be brought low. But through and through human leadership, they saw that outcome through God's leadership in Christ. Eventually, the glory of the father's house will return to the house of David. And that will be the way the Lord will restore them one day, filling in that picture. Heavenly Father, we look forward to your return and your son, and we look forward, Father, to the day that we may be with him. We pray, Father, that would be soon. We pray that these events could be brought about quickly. But, Father, as we wait for them and as we know they are inevitably going to come, as your word says, we pray, Father, they would give us a a strong desire and hope to reach others with your word, to communicate the truth of the gospel, Father, that we might be successful according to your will and and by your power in... um, adding more to your kingdom so that they may be with us in that day as your Lord 
as our Lord comes back. Thank you, Father, for a night of study and for patience and, and energy to go through it. And we pray for another opportunity next week. In Jesus' name, amen.